Acts 16, verse 16 to 40. Once, when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and they are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We're all here. The jailer called for lights rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, release those men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens and threw us into prison. And now do they want to get rid of us quietly? No, let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates. And when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. Then they left. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
In my last year of seminary, I spent the month of January with a group of fellow students and one of our professors traipsing around Turkey and Greece, following Paul's missionary journeys and visiting some of the cities that are mentioned in the book of Revelation. About midway through the trip, we left Turkey and crossed a small channel that uh, goes across the Aegean Sea. We landed in Greece and we headed to the city of Philippi, which is where this story takes place. Only we didn't get to the city of Philippi. The road leading to the ruins of this ancient city was closed with an army truck full of soldiers blocking the entrance into the road. The ruins of the city of Philippi sit atop a large hill, and the road up that hill was covered in something that the people of Greece were not all that accustomed to, snow. So this was as close as we got to the ancient city of Philippi, all of our minds blown by the idea that Paul might have traipsed through snow on one of his missionary journeys. We imagine sandals and tunics when we picture the apostles, not leather boots and wool coats. It's crazy to me to think that snow might have gotten in the way of Paul's own journeys, that this might have been an obstacle for him. And of course, we don't know that snow ever was an obstacle for Paul. Hopefully, it was not because Paul had enough problems to be getting on with, thank you very much, including here in the city of Philippi. He's here with Silas and Timothy and some other companions. Philippi is a Roman colony in the province of Macedonia, and it is the leading city of Macedonia. There is wealth and prestige and pride in this great walled city built on a hill. People make their money here all sorts of ways. Earlier in this chapter, we meet Lydia, who's mentioned at the end of our text, a, a dealer in purple cloth who welcomes Paul and his friends into her home. But there are some less than savory ways of making money here, too. And Paul and his companions encounter this as one day as they are making their way to the, the place of prayer. Going through the busy streets of the marketplace, they come across a young girl who is possessed by a spirit that allows her to tell the future. And she follows the group of men every day as they make their way to this place of prayer proclaiming who they are to everyone they pass, this spirit loud and obnoxious within her. Finally, Paul has enough, and he turns around and orders the spirit to leave her, and it does. At last, some peace and quiet. Only the minute that this girl's owners realize their way of making money has vanished into thin air, they cause their own uproar. They grab Paul and Silas, the ringleaders of this group, and haul them before the Roman magistrates, declaring that Paul and Silas are rabble-rousers, disturbers of the peace, and they must be locked up lest they lead the whole city into mayhem. The magistrates, caught up in the frenzy of the crowd, order Paul and Silas to be stripped, beaten, 
and thrown into jail. So there they sit, having freed this young woman of an evil spirit. Paul and Silas now find themselves physically imprisoned. And it struck me as I studied this text this week how many walls there are in this story. How many different kinds of prisons exist here. There's the obvious one, the literal prison in which Paul and Silas now find themselves. Four walls of stone with a big iron door that is locked on the outside by a key held by a jailer. A place where Paul and Silas are thrown against their will. Then there's the prison of the young girl, trapped by the force of an evil spirit and enslaved by greedy men. Hers are not literal walls, but she is very much alone, unable to break free of her, both her physical and spiritual captors. And then there are the walls of the city. And maybe we wouldn't immediately think of these walls as creating a prison, but they serve a similar purpose to the walls of a jail, only in reverse. A jail keeps people in. City walls are there to keep people out. They protect a, a way of life, a way of doing things. They protect against any possibility of outward change. And I wonder how we experience these kinds of prisons in our own lives. What it is that has us sometimes feeling trapped. For some of us, I think there are, are visible kind of concrete walls around us that dictate what our life looks like, that leave us unable to live the kind of life we want. There's cancer and blocked arteries and arthritis and bad knees and physical ailments that keep us at home or in bed or close to a hospital. These things limit us. They make our world feel small. For some of us, the walls are, are maybe less visible, but no less constricting. A seemingly perfect marriage that in fact has us feeling trapped. A mental illness that we are trying to treat and to manage, but that sneaks up on us from time to time, leaving us in a debilitated state. An addiction that pulls us deeper and deeper into itself. A longing for a partner or for a child, for a job, for a sense of purpose. Something that tinges everything else in our world with a bit of gray. And for some of us, we are caged in by walls that we ourselves have erected. Defenses we have put up to protect ourselves 
or to hide ourselves. We put up walls of bravado to conceal our insecurities. We stack excuses one on top of another so we can deny that we have any issue we need to deal with. We cast blame on those people out there so we can ignore our own culpability. Frederick Buechner says this of this kind of jail. The inner state you end up with is a castle-like affair of keep, inner wall, outer wall, moat, which you erect originally to be a fortress to keep the enemy out, but which turns into a prison where you become the jailer and thus your own enemy. It is a wretched and lonely place. You can't be what you want to be there or do what you want to do. People can't see through all that masonry to who you truly are, and half the time you're not sure you can see who you truly are yourself. You've been walled up so long. Prison is a wretched and a lonely place. Whatever our prison is, whether physical or mental or spiritual, whatever it is that is making our world feel small, whatever place it is that we desperately want to escape, that place is lonely. It feels like we're all alone. Paul and Silas are in prison. They are behind four walls of solid stone and an iron gate locked from the outside. They are shackled to the floor. They are alone. But Paul and Silas have something with them in that prison that fills that dark, dank room with a bit of light. They have the knowledge that they are not, in fact, alone. Paul and Silas, in that prison, begin to pray. They begin to sing. We don't know what exactly they prayed for, but that doesn't really matter. What we do know is that Paul and Silas knew that they had a God who could not be kept away. Not by snow, on a mountain pass or by four walls of stone and an iron door. Paul and Silas could be with God, could experience communion with God, could experience the presence of God by praying. And it's this communion with God that the great American preacher of the early 20th century Harry Emerson Fosdick says, is at the heart of prayer. We think of prayer as doing a lot of different things. It's a way in which we express to God the desires of our heart. Or it's a, a, a means by which we train our hearts to be more sympathetic, to care about things. But these things are not the fullness of prayer. Fosdick writes in his book, The Meaning of Prayer, prayer is neither chiefly begging for things, nor is it merely self-communion. It is that loftiest experience within the reach of any soul, 
communion with God. The great gift of God in prayer is himself. And whatever else he gives is incidental and secondary. Prayer is the means by which we develop and experience a relationship with God. Which means that prayer isn't just something we do every once in a while before we eat a meal or as we climb into bed, but is a way of being. It's a habitual attitude, a continual conversation with God, a a paying attention to and listening to God throughout our day. The practice of prayer, says Fosdick, is necessary to make God not merely an idea held in the mind, but a presence recognized in the life. There's a a story uh, of Voltaire, the great French philosopher, uh, who also was known to be an atheist. And he and his friend were in the street one day as a procession with a crucifix passed alongside them. And, and Voltaire kind of saluted it. He, he made reference to it. He, he bowed and acknowledged this crucifix. And his friend said, what? Are you a believer now? Are you a Christian now? What, like, what's happened to you? And Voltaire said, no, nah, we salute me and God. We salute, but we do not speak. We salute, but we do not speak. How many of us live with this idea of God, the belief in God, the knowledge of God? We salute God, but do we speak with God? The practice of prayer is necessary to make God not merely an idea held in the mind, but a presence recognized in the life which means that prayer can be a lot simpler than we sometimes make it out to be. It doesn't have to follow a formula. It doesn't have to be as long as the long prayer of Sunday mornings. It doesn't have to be well-worded and grammatically correct or full of beautiful, flowery language. It's just you, before God, listening, speaking, opening your heart to his presence. In the message translation of Matthew 6, where Jesus tells his disciples how to pray, Jesus says, find a quiet, secluded place so you won't be tempted to role play before God. Just be there as simply and honestly as you can manage. The focus will shift from you to God and you will begin to sense his grace. Just be before God, simply and honestly. Now, certainly, this habitual practice of regularly communing with God throughout our day is helped when we set aside some time for more dedicated practice. Just like we have a day specifically set aside to celebrate Thanksgiving, which hopefully helps us to be more thankful throughout the entire year, we have times of dedicated prayer 
intentional prayer that help us then live into, that launch us into an attitude of prayer throughout the day. Paul and Silas, after all, they are on their way to a place of prayer when they are arrested and thrown into jail. They have built into their rhythms times of dedicated prayer that then make it only natural for them to speak to God, to commune with God, even when the conditions are a little less conducive. And here's what happens when we make prayer a habitual part of our day, when we seek communion with God above all else. We come to know God. We find ourselves deeply attuned to God's ways, to his will. What I find fascinating about this story of Paul and Silas is that the first thing they do after God brings the walls of their prison down is not to run. They don't see their freedom as God's answer to what they were probably praying for and then take off into safety. They hang around because there is someone else here who needs to be freed. There is an opportunity to bring someone else into this relationship, into this communion with God. Paul and Silas are so attuned to the working of the Spirit that they know that this story isn't actually about their own freedom but is about the grace of God being extended to the jailer and his family. This is an opportunity to bear witness to the presence of God, a presence that Paul and Silas know deep within them, a presence that they invite the jailer and his family now into. In our own situations, Sometimes the walls of our prisons don't crumble quite as dramatically. We recover slowly with a lot of ups and downs along the way. We begin to treat our anxiety with medication, but that doesn't mean it evaporates overnight. We start talking to a therapist and slowly, brick by brick, we take down some of our defenses. And sometimes those walls look as solid as ever. The cancer keeps spreading. Our fertility prognosis doesn't change. A broken relationship doesn't look like it can be repaired. But even here, in these places that look hopeless, God is present. Even when it doesn't look like God is answering our prayers the way we want him to, he is answering our prayers. He gives us himself. He gives us his presence. Beekner says, the words help me. They open a door through the walls. That's all. But at least hope is possible. At least you are no longer alone.
prayer is as simple as that. Help me. Hear me. I love you. I need you. I am listening. Prayer opens our hearts to see the presence of God, the presence of Christ, who, after he was raised from the dead, appeared before his disciples in a locked room and then revealed himself to the travelers in the breaking of bread. There is nothing that can stop God from being present to us. No prison we find ourselves in, no closed off road, no circumstances that seem to us to be impossible to overcome. God is with us. We need only to open our hearts so we might see him. So this morning, I would like to invite you to pray, to still your heart, to sit in the silence and to be before God as simply and as honestly as you can. There are a lot of different ways that we can pray, but the one I find helpful as I think about prayer as a habitual practice throughout the day is what's called a breath prayer. You pray just one line with each breath. One version of the prayer invites you to ask God to fill you with his gifts as you inhale and to free you from whatever is burdening you as you exhale. And then you just repeat that prayer. As you breathe in, asking for God's gifts. As you breathe out, releasing some burden. You just breathe. You breathe this prayer over and over again. So maybe your prayer this morning is, God, I breathe in your peace. Free me from my anxiety. Or maybe it's, God, I receive your faithfulness. Free me from my fear. Whatever it is, I invite you to spend some time now sitting with God, opening your hearts to his presence, breathing in his gifts, asking him to take from you whatever you're holding on to. So in the silence, let us pray.